Hey everyone, my name is Rohan Sant and welcome to the second part of our interview with Jeremy Robertson, an interlindependent diabetic, doctor and former commercial pilot working in Australia. So in the first part of the interview, Jeremy was telling us all about his diagnosis and his story. But in the second part, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the 1% rule, how interlindependent diabetics were allowed to fly commercially in Australia, as well as where we think the future of diabetes in aerospace is going to be. Hope you enjoy. Now, moving forward, I, I want to I wanna do a little deep dive into, into diabetes because I think it's such a prevalent condition that us as doctors and particularly in the aerospace community need to have a good grasp upon. So, you know, it's, it's a pleasure you, you being here and able to give, give us that. Um, and again, you talked about the evidence basis of how aerospace medicine, aviation medicine should be. You know, it should be always grounded in that. And as, you know, the specialists progress to their specialist position, of course, in, in the UK, you, you know, and, and all over the place, you know, I want to talk about the 1% rule because it was it was a, mm-hmm. a rule and a principle which I, I spent a lot of time, you know, you know, racking, you know, banging my head against the wall about because you need to be able to derive it and you really need to have that understanding so then you can make decisions, you know, based upon it. So uh, for anybody uh, listening who doesn't understand or doesn't know about the 1% rule, this uh, is a principle within aviation medicine whereby the medical certification for professional pilots uh, is, is based upon. And its aim is to reduce the medical component of human factors risk that contributes to fatal accidents to an acceptable level, which is less than 1% per year. Now, on that, what are your thoughts, Jeremy? Because it's, some, sometimes, you know, it's a little bit controversial because it is actually uh, quite an old uh, rule and uh, it's, it's brought about in, in, in the 70s. Um, and there's there's a there's a bit of controversy about it. What, what are your thoughts behind it? Yeah, I think um, it yeah it is it always uh, it always generates good discussion whenever it's raised at conferences. Um, I guess it's better than nothing. It's kind of what it boils down to a lot of the time. Uh, you know, how do we make a decision about what is an acceptable level of risk for a medical condition? Um, and actually, if people like reading papers, there's an excellent paper by um, Mitchell and Evans, which is in uh, the March 2004 edition of Aviation, Space and Environmental Medicine. Uh, and it, it talks about, it actually goes through the derivation of the, the 1% rule originally and then has some interesting discussion points about why it may or may not be so useful and, uh, and what you know, some possible ways to, to move forward from it are. Um, you know, it's now 16 years old and we still really haven't moved forward, but people people quote that paper quite a lot. It's better than nothing, um, but I don't. It, it becomes difficult to apply to absolutely all medical conditions. Uh, you know, a lot yeah. of aviation medicine does boil down to incapacitation risk. That's what we're worried about. We're worried about the pilot becoming incapacitated at the controls. And, um, yep. you know, we, we understand that risk is the, uh, you know, the combination of the, the chance of something happening versus the, the consequences of that event happening. So trying to figure out what risk from what different medical condition is acceptable or not in the operating environment uh, yeah, it's very difficult. And again, this was talking about transport category airplanes, you know, multi-crew environment, uh, airline yeah. flying essentially. But that doesn't encompass mm. all of aviation. And it certainly doesn't encompass all of aviation that the pilots that I see fly. Uh, That's the thing. So, yeah. Does it, yeah, how do we, I mean, how do we apply it? I think, I think for, for me, the, the, the biggest conflict that I have in my mind about the rule and about the basis in which we make decisions upon is that it doesn't take into account technology. Medical technology is moving at speed of light right now, particularly with diabetes, right? Mm. There's a lot of money in diabetes, people, and, and there's a lot of technology there. And it's moving so fast. And the very reason, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but the very reason that we have amazing pilots like yourself able to get a class one is because where we are in technology. So it has to take that into account. But yeah, well, I think that's interesting if we talk specifically about diabetes, um, because the advances in technology, predominantly continuous glucose monitoring, now allow me to know what my blood sugar level is every five minutes of every day of every year. So I can actually quantify the amount of time my blood sugar level is less than four millimoles or less than three millimoles. And and three millimoles is the, the generally accepted threshold for a definition of hypoglycemia and becoming incapacitated. Jeremy, just a quick, uh, make sure that we get everyone caught up as well just to can you just briefly overview like what uh, why is it that we have to what does it about diabetes that make people incapacitated during flight if you could just briefly explain that for anyone who may not yeah. be quite familiar well i mean diabetes and incapacitation is interesting in the aviation environment because we have two well i guess we have three kind of types of incapacitation to talk about uh the one that everyone worries about is someone mismanaging their diabetes to the point where their blood sugar level drops so low that their brain runs out of fuel and they pass out. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, that's a, a severe incapacitation or a total incapacitation. You, know, you can't, your brain really struggles to function when your blood sugar level drops below three. Mm. Um, but when your sugar is in that sort of three to four range, some would argue that you are suffering a subtle form of incapacitation for anyone that's been hangry and you know, <laughs> kind of shaky and sweaty and just really 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 want something to eat you know it's quite possible physiologically that your blood sugar level is between three and a half and four millimoles and you know are you thinking clearly are you performing optimally at in that range probably not yeah, that would probably count as a you know a subtle form of incapacitation if you're talking about the operating effectiveness of an airline pilot crew. Uh, and these these are all acute events, events that happen you know, in sh- uh, quickly or in, in the short term. At the other end of the spectrum with diabetes, if you allow your sugars to run too high for too long a period, you start to do damage to you know, the ends of all your nerves. You start to do damage to your kidneys. You start to do damage to mm. fine nerves and blood vessels in your eyes. So mm. do you start to uh, get to a point where you don't meet the standard for an aviation medical in a whole bunch of different domains because of uh, you know, persistent long-term high blood sugar levels? And then also, if your blood sugar level is very high for a short period of time, and we're talking above 20 to 25 millimoles, uh, there's evidence to suggest that at that point you, your cognitive function is also impacted. Um, so we've got, we've got a bunch of different types of incapacitation that you're capable of giving yourself if you have diabetes. Wow. And it's easier for these to happen if your diabetes management requires insulin. So I'm not going to talk about type 1 or type 2 or any of the other types of diabetes. I'm just going to talk about requiring insulin therapy. Uh, and for those for those of you that aren't familiar with what insulin does, it's the little chemical that your body creates that basically drags the sugar from your bloodstream that you've absorbed from the food you've eaten, drags it out of your bloodstream and across into the cells in your body that need it for energy, whether they be muscles or your brain. Um, so without insulin, the sugar just goes round and round in your bloodstream and never gets to where it needs to be. So giving yourself insulin, if you give yourself the right amount, you function perfectly. If you give yourself too much insulin, you can forcibly drive your blood sugar level uh, down to those low levels we were talking about, you know, below three or below four millimoles. Or conversely, if you don't give yourself enough, you can end up with your blood sugar level being very high. Um, and this is one of the things I find fascinating about diabetes is that it is so dependent on the person's level of engagement and understanding of their disease uh, that impacts their, you know, the outcomes of their management. Yes. I, and I mean, on that note, I, I wanted to go deeper into that protocol that you helped create that protocol 
for diabetic pilots who who want a class one and what exactly you know that means and of course i mean you would be an exemplary patient so how we can model well that that patient i guess firstly i'm not the perfect diabetic uh um uh yeah i would like to think that i am you know i'm well controlled but i am by no means perfect uh and i think the perfect diabetic is probably um probably a figment of people's imaginations, much like unicorns and so on. Um, and in fact, <laughs> as, a, as a humorous anecdote, in the diabetic community, when you test your blood sugar level and if it actually comes back at five millimoles exactly, that's actually referred to as a unicorn because it almost never happens. It's almost never exactly five. Such a rare event. Um, so people, you know, other people with diabetes that I follow on my Instagram. Yeah, their Instagram stories will pop up with a big rainbow uh, emoji and a screenshot of their phone <laughs> with five millimoles. It's, uh, yeah, it's just a little bit of diabetes humor <laughs> on the side there. Um, but, uh, coming back to yeah. the protocol, I guess before I delve into the protocol, I, I probably should just talk a little bit more about diabetes and flying. And we've spoken about how having diabetes can impact your ability to uh, I guess, remain cognitively intact. Um, mm. And when we talk about the intersection of flying and any medical condition, which we sort of talk about it in two directions, and we talk about how does having whatever disease you have impact the flying environment, and we also talk about it the other way. How does the flying environment, the aviation environment, impact having whatever disease you have? Um, the same goes for diabetes. So, Yes, if you have diabetes, the problems in the aviation environment are you can suffer you know, incapacitating events, be it subtle or overt, in the short term, but also in the long term. Um, and as part of my day-to-day management of diabetes, you know, I need food, I need insulin, I need my bits of technology. And am, how easy is it for me to do all of that whilst I'm flying if I'm strapped into a single seat? cockpit of a fighter jet it's probably harder for me to access doing a a finger prick test on my blood sugar level or it's probably hard Mm. to eat a mars bar if i've got a full face helmet and oxygen mask on things like that um high g environments you know how does high g environments or high workload environments impact your your blood sugar levels there's all sorts of things Mm. we need to think about depending on the operational environment that can impact diabetes and and vice versa. So coming back to the protocol, and I, yeah, big caveat, I, I didn't write the protocol. What the protocol here in Australia, I guess, that I have helped develop is based very, very heavily, probably 90% on the protocol that was developed by the UK CAA. Now, that in turn had input from the protocol that had been developed previously in Canada. Uh, so again, really where I have ended up is, is just by building on the work of, of, uh, of a lot of people who've worked harder than me previously. Um, so the protocol itself broadly talks about diabetes and how it's managed prior to being certified. And then there's a big component on how it's managed once you have your medical. And then there's you know, other components that talk about uh, the ongoing process for renewing your medical. And the, I guess it's probably neatly summarised as entry requirements. You know, you need to be able to demonstrate this level of control with your diabetes to be able to even apply uh, for a medical. And those look at things like what your average blood sugar level is over a, uh, a long period of time, usually a, a 12-month period leading up to the initial application. Uh, also looks at the absence of long-term side effects. So we spoke before about you know being able to damage your eyes and your kidneys and your nerves if your diabetes is not well controlled. Um, the protocol requires an absence of any of those side effects. It also requires that you demonstrate a good understanding of your diabetes. And here in Australia, they require you to you know, show a certificate to say that you've done a, um, a diabetes education course about you know, dosing and carbohydrate counting and that kind of thing. Um, so there's a, a lot of information that you need to provide prior to 
uh, or as part of your initial application. And essentially, that just looks at, you know, has this person been well controlled and not damaged themselves as a result of, of, uh, of any side effects or consequences of diabetes? And is their understanding of their disease to the level where they can demonstrate uh, that their blood sugar level remains in a certain range the majority of the time? And broadly speaking, those numbers are keeping your blood sugar level between uh, about 4 and 14 millimoles, more than sort of mm. 70 to 80% of the time, and not having your readings below 4 millimoles being greater than about 5% of the time. So that sort of data is kind of slow to collect if you're just using finger pricks. You know, some, some people with diabetes have managed themselves very effectively just doing four finger pricks a day for decades. Um, uh, mm-hmm. I, having now used a continuous glucose monitor and you know, getting five minutely readings, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't know. Don't think I'd cope yeah. with that anymore. I couldn't go. And that's how I started out, but I, I couldn't go back to it now. Yeah. Um, so the protocol in the UK allows for uh, only capillary blood glucose, you know, finger prick readings. Um, the protocol in Australia requires continuous glucose monitoring. And that's really, that is a change for two reasons. One, when the UK protocol was developed, CGMs were still quite new and their accuracy levels were not fantastic. You know, skip forward a number of years, the accuracy levels are now really good and um, and they're becoming much, you know, much more prevalent in their use. So if we're going to do something that's new, why not incorporate the best technology that allows the most information on, on managing your disease? Yes, Exactly. So, yeah. So hence the, yeah. the requirement for the CGM here, and likewise in the US, you know, the US has just released uh, a similar rule change, and they also require uh, CGM use for um, for a class one certification. So that's yeah. So that's all the, like the the mm. I guess what you've got to show when you rock up at the AME's door. So this is me. This is my diabetes. This is how good it is. I'd like to apply for a class one, and if um, if you're successful in achieving the class one, then there's a whole bunch of you know, similar kind of stuff about how you manage your diabetes in flight. And the management is targeted at minimizing the risk of incapacitation in flight. So, yeah, the one in Australia, you need the CGM up and running uh, and your blood sugar level has to remain between 5 millimoles and 15 millimoles for the duration of the flight. That's, Good. Uh, Good. Now that's a wildly huge range for, for diabetes. Um, most well-controlled diabetes, people with diabetes will be trying to remain within the 4 to 8 or the 5 to 10 mm. millimole range majority of the time. So it seems kind of incongruous that the in-flight range is so high. But what that reflects is the risk of incapacitation. There's no acute risk of incapacitation, having your blood level, blood sugar level between 10 and 15 and probably nothing between 15 and 20, to be honest, either. So what the protocol says is if it's between 5 and 15, just do what you need to do to manage your diabetes. Eat when you need to, have insulin when you need to. Just, you know, you've shown us that your diabetes is well controlled, so just do what you do to keep it that way. If your blood sugar level moves outside of those ranges, the protocol starts to require you to take action so if it's below five but above four that's when you're starting to head towards uh you know an increased risk of subtle incapacitation but you know you're probably not there yet so it just the protocol just mandates that you check your blood sugar level and that you act appropriately so you know you have to actively do something about it um you know if you get to that point and you haven't actually done anything to manage your diabetes you would probably eat some rapid acting carbohydrate and that's what would increase your blood sugar level Uh, if your blood sugar level continues to drop and drops below four millimoles the protocol dictates that you have to hand over to the other pilot Uh, and actually that's something i didn't mention in australia this protocol for class one medicals requires that you have a 
a multi-crew restriction on your medical. So you can only operate in a commercial environment if there is another pilot with you. Yeah, you know, for the majority of airline flying, that's that's just normal. So it doesn't really impact uh, your ability to work for an airline. The sort of flying that happens with only one commercial pilot is um, you know, a lot of aeromedical retrievals. And uh, in Australia, a lot of the, the smaller aircraft commercial flying. So I couldn't, for example, go back to my previous job of being the flying postie. Uh, or taking people for scenic flights in in small aeroplanes. But in the commercial environment, multi-crew environment, uh, it it works well. So, yes, if your blood sugar level drops into that range where you're at risk of uh, being incapacitated, then you would hand over control to the other pilot. And once your blood sugar level has returned to a safe level, usually above 5 millimoles, then after a period of time you're allowed to, uh, you know, resume control of the aircraft Uh, likewise at the other end of the scale if your blood sugar level gets above 15 the protocol dictates that you do something about it Um, so normally that would involve giving yourself an insulin dose Uh, if you're on a pump probably double checking that the pump's working you know you haven't got an occlusion or a a kink in your line that sort of thing Uh, if your blood sugar level gets above 20 then uh, the protocol dictates that you have to hand over to the other pilot whilst you sort yourself out. But again, the you know, the risk of ending up at those extremes of the range is minimal because to be allowed to have the medical, you have to have demonstrated that you spend you know, a very minimal amount of time in those ranges in your day-to-day life. Yeah, um, yeah. And then, mm. well, so that, yeah, that, that's kind of the crux of the in-flight management. And for those of you that are familiar with the UK protocol, mm you will recognize almost all of that because that's exactly how the UK protocol works. Um, the The US yep. protocol is slightly yep. different in that it's less, uh, uh, I guess, less didactic, doesn't, doesn't tell you what to do and when to do it. And the, the US protocol does not mm. have a multi-crew restriction, uh, whereas the UK and, and Australian protocols do. Uh, and that's that sounds like a bit of an anomaly. You know, it, it's... One of the restrictions that mm. regulatory authorities use to mitigate risk is to you know, apply a multi-crew restriction. Because worst case, if a pilot dies, there's another pilot there to keep pressing the buttons. Um, the US, uh, through, a, I think it's a, a bit of a historical legal case, um, their medical mm. department, the FAA medical department, does not have the ability to impose operational restrictions on a medical. So they, they can't say multi-crew restriction. And that's what I was so pleased about when they adopted their protocol is that they are obviously happy enough with their protocol and the demonstrated mm. risk of, of a, you know, a well-controlled person with diabetes and insulin therapy to issue a class one with no restrictions. So that's, yeah, that's an interesting point of difference between the US and, uh, and the rest of the world. If I'm, if mm. I'm correct in my thinking, Jeremy, that was the thing, the thing that really allowed you to, to progress things through bit better in australia as well right because the australian changes only came around this year if i'm correct and then the, the u.s changes came around in 2019 i may have got that completely wrong but please correct mm. me if i'm wrong no 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 you're exactly right um but the, to be honest there was only four or five months difference between the two right uh so the 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 u.s um had been a work in progress for a number of years and the, the protocol here in australia has been kind of a work in progress for about three or four years as well. Right. Um, so if anything, it's actually closer to them coming out simultaneously uh, rather than anything. Um, certainly the US decision, I think, uh, yeah, added a bit of confidence to the, to the ability to make the same decision in Australia. But um, if you compare the two protocols side to side, they're, they're actually significantly different. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much... Uh, Fine. So it was more of a sort of a mm. coincidence, perhaps, rather than it necessarily being one following the other. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, yes, I think so. You know, people have been pushing for the same things at the same times, just on opposite sides of the Pacific. So, it, uh, yeah, it was it was very nice to see it all sort of come together, very close together. Yeah, it's really cool. Now, speaking of uh, protocols, thank you very much, uh, Jeremy, for for giving us that. Uh, overview on the protocol. Um, we're going to put all the details of th- that protocol and those protocols for different countries on the show notes. Very important. Um, following along, it's, uh, it's, 
I mean, what sprung to mind for me, and particularly mm-hmm. when I was studying this um, during my aviation medicine studies, was what is actually going on in the cockpit? And, and how does it feel to be a, a pilot with diabetes when, you know, your blood sugar goes a little bit lower than it should be and you're communicating with your colleagues and you're using, you're doing what you have to do. Is it, is it hectic? Is it controlled? Is it, you know, is it worrying? What, what is it like? Mm. Has it happened to you before? Yeah, look, um, and I guess this is another, another component of aviation medicine is that we can mitigate risk, but we can never eliminate risk. Um, so, yeah, the goal of the, the protocol for, for insulin-treated pilots is to minimise the risk of them uh, you know, having blood sugar level excursions, but it would be um, uh, you know, it would be ridiculous to think that they're never going to happen. So yeah, it becomes more about how are those situations managed. So, but yeah, for my for my medical renewals here in Australia, for my class two medical that I've had for a number of years, uh, I'm required to um, highlight any excursions yeah. at my blood sugar level in flight and explain how I manage them. And uh, so it has happened. Uh, so I've done 800 mm. flying hours now uh, since my diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. And I've probably had four or five situations at least where my blood sugar level has, has gone outside the, um, uh, the, the guidelines there. But none of, them, none of them have been scary because, again, it comes back to how I manage my diabetes if, and that, you know, how I manage my diabetes day to day as well as in flight in that I minimize the variables that cause rapid changes in blood sugar level. So the way I eat, uh, the way I dose my insulin, types of food I eat, all result in quite gradual changes in blood sugar level. So, and I will respond accordingly. Um, so, for example, I think you know, the one that springs to mind is uh, flying, flying back to Bankstown, you know, my local small airport, small aircraft airport. My CGM I have set up to have an alarm so that if my blood sugar level drops below five and a half it'll actually light up and that gives me some you know some warning that i'm heading in the wrong direction but i'm still not at at or below five millimoles Uh, so and normally i'm actually watching my cgm often enough that i will pick up a trend in the downward direction before my cgm alarms and that's what had happened in this occasion yeah my blood sugar level was actually just trundling downhill not at an alarming rate uh, and it passed six millimoles, and that's normally my trigger just to have a snack to prop it up to keep it above six. Now that gives me a bit of margin over the, the limit. So I had a, a snack that I am familiar with and has a known uh, you know, response for my blood sugar level. And for whatever reason, it didn't have the, the response that I expected. So my blood sugar level just continued to trundle downhill slowly. Um, and it got to a bit above five millimoles, so I... I had uh, I had some jelly beans because that's kind of my go-to uh, for wanting a rapid increase in my blood sugar level, and they didn't respond as I would have expected them either. Uh, my blood sugar level continued mm-hmm. to trundle downhill. So, and at this point, I was about thirty minutes from landing, so I just uh, I just had more jelly beans, and I had more than I would normally have if I was on the ground. Because uh, what I needed was a rapid response in the right direction, and I wasn't worried about ending up significantly high. Uh, so uh, I had yeah had more jelly beans, and my blood sugar level turned the corner. I think it, I didn't it got down to about four and a half millimoles, and then and mm. it came back up again. And by the time I landed, it was back above five. And then uh, having had that quantity of jelly beans, you know, as I was packing the airplane away. It, uh, it ended up above yeah. 10, which is you know, above where I, I would like to be day to day. Emergency jelly beans. It's, um, it's less of a worry. So, <laughs> so, yeah, that is emergency jelly beans. My kids know not to jelly beans. They get in trouble. Um, so coming back to the operational aspects of it, that's you know, purely how I manage my diabetes. But around that, I'm managing a single pilot IFR airplane flying back into a busy airport. And... What I find with my CGM is because it's stuck on the control yoke in front of me, it just becomes another system in the airplane to monitor. And 
the amount of time that it uh, it gets given is proportional to uh, you know to what's going on uh, and you know what's going on with my blood sugar levels. So obviously during the flight when it's stable, it doesn't get a huge amount of attention uh, because it doesn't need it. As it gets closer to the edges in either direction, it gets more attention uh, and you know, it just gets more attention the more serious it becomes. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm I'm used to operating complex airplanes in a busy environment, so that kind of workload I don't find adds much to to my overall workload. But one of the things that you have to do as part of the protocol is you actually have to be signed off by a flying instructor to show that you can manage your diabetes without affecting the operation of the airplane. So I haven't I haven't found a situation yet where I've had to change the way I operate the aeroplane to make room for my diabetes but I would certainly have a very low threshold to do that if it was required. So if I found myself in a situation where my blood sugar level was decreasing uh, to below where I wanted it and I was heading towards a high workload environment like just about start an instrument approach or flying into a busy circuit or something like that, I would I would elect not to proceed into those environments. You know, I would uh, either remain at altitude, enter a holding pattern, get a vector to stay away from the busy area or remain outside yeah. the cold airspace. Just keep myself in a low workload environment from an aeroplane point of view to allow myself mm. the headspace to focus on, you know, the operation of my diabetes. Mm. And that kind of task prioritization yeah. is something that you get trained for as a pilot. Um, and Danny, you've probably seen that as part of your critical care training as well. That um, that really means for me, I don't I don't struggle with the management of my diabetes because it just slots so nicely into how I manage an aeroplane anyway. Uh, it's just another system. Yeah, you seem like a, a very calm uh, individual, and you know, it's uh, I can never imagine you panicking. You, know, you seem like you've got a plan for everything, and and I, I suppose that's that's hugely important in in, um, in what you're doing. Yeah, I, I guess I don't know whether it, I ended up being calm after years of airline pilot training, or if it was built into me to begin with. But uh, certainly, you um, you certainly do adopt a certain persona when you, you know, yeah, when you've got your work hat on. You know, you've got your professional self and your personal self, yeah. and uh, yeah, the, the airline pilot training in me makes me fairly calm and methodical. And mm. if I and if I get my if I find myself getting wound up about something, that's a real red flag to slow down, minimise my workload, task yeah. shed, you know, reprioritise. Um, my my ED seniors used to get frustrated at me because I would hit a ceiling on my work rate and I would never work faster than a certain rate because I just couldn't bring myself to do that because uh, I know that that's when errors creep in and, um, and that's yeah. the thing. So uh, that's, that's a, yeah, <laughs> a leftover from my airline pilot career. Um, yeah, rushing is just a That's a strong statement. That's, that's a really, really strong statement. I, I want to draw a bit more attention to that. You said that you, you know, other people might pressure you to work a little bit faster, but you wouldn't bring yourself faster than that because you know yourself, you know your, you know, ability and what might disrupt you and, you know, might take you lower in terms of, you know, getting things done. So you stuck to that and you kept safe. That That is really, really nice. You know, that's, that's really, yeah, really nice. Um, I mean, we could probably do a whole podcast on the differences that I've found between my aviation and, and my medical careers. But, um, uh, but yeah, certainly the, the human factor side of it. Is, is definitely one of the, the real uh, eye-openers. Mm. Now, in addition, <laughs> you've just had, you know, a major mm. breakthrough this year in uh, commercial aviation, getting your class one. Um, I know Rohan has a real big question, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to let him ask, ask you this. Everyone lips this one. Yep. Go ahead. Halfway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know what's coming. Obviously, now you've got um, – so you spent all of this time – you've trained as you mentioned a long time to get your aviation qualifications uh, went to medicine and now you've actually regained the ability to at least medically be fit to fly commercial mm. aircraft so are you are you thinking about going back to flying commercially or are you sticking with medicine now or what, what what's your what's your plan now for the well, future well the long term plan has to be a return to commercial flying in some capacity uh you know it's hey! <laughs> it, it, you know it's my it, it, it was my first professional love. Um, I do miss it. And, you know, 
I seek it out in my spare time. So I, I know that there is definitely room in my life for some commercial flying again. Um, uh, COVID-19, I think, has kind of probably made a bit of a decision for me in the immediate term in that, you know, 90% of the world's pilots are out of work at the moment. So that's, uh, you know, wildly disappointing for all my pilot mates out there, but that will certainly delay my return to the cockpit. Uh, but I can't walk away from medicine because I've now spent a decade of my life getting this career up and running. And I can see that my unique combination of qualifications puts me in a really interesting position to contribute to aviation medicine. And I find that happening already. Uh, I find that, um, yeah, we spoke earlier about that doctor-patient doctor relationship and the doctor-pilot relationship. And as an AME, that's, mm-hmm. that's such a huge thing because, I've, because everyone knows my story. You know, almost no pilots come to see me for a medical that don't know my backstory. They, mm-hmm. Pilots generally tend to see me as a pilot with a doctor's license. So, uh, and, mm-hmm. and I will normally open the consult just by talking about flying. I find some common ground mm. and, uh, and that builds that trust, breaks down those those barriers and I find I, you know, I, I, I get a lot out of my consults with pilots um, because of that. Mm. One of I the areas that's quite topical in aviation medicine at the moment where this is uh, yeah, a really important aspect is mental health, um, you know, I can't not say German wings. Mm. You know, the the ability for pilots to be so scared about losing their professional qualifications to end up minimising symptoms or hiding diagnoses you know, can can only have catastrophic outcomes in the long run. So yeah. to be able to to build that trust, you know, mental health in the general population carries a, a stigma. In the aviation community, it's even stronger. So uh, so if I can build that trust with pilots um, and, you know, and, and use that as a way to, I guess, give them the confidence to, um, to address any mental health issues they have and, and work through them, uh, yeah, I find that such a useful thing. Uh, as you, you know, as you mentioned, you are an aerom- you are basically, a, you describe yourself almost like a pilot with a doctor's license. Mm. Um, how have you found dealing with the situations, if you've had them, when you've had to maybe revoke somebody's medical fitness to fly? Yeah, um, I've, it, it happens. It's part of life as an AME. And, um, you know, one of my pilots the other day where this happened said to me, you know, I had a feeling this was coming, but, you know, I couldn't think of a better Damey to be talking to it about um, and, and thanked me for right. being understanding. And, yeah, as, as painful as it is, I understand because I've been through it. You know, I've, uh, it's, and it, yeah, you know, it does. It upsets well. me. Um, but I think that's that's only natural. Um, but yeah, I, I guess yeah, it comes back to that communication and that understanding. I can, uh, I can couch it in phrases that soften the blow, and I can talk about. Yeah, you know, I, I know what the condition is and where it slots into the the available hierarchy of medicals. I can talk about options, immediate or down the track. Um, so, yeah. Now, can you tell us about a situation for, let's say, a 14, 15-year-old kid with type 1 diabetes who wants to be a pilot? What's the situation? So it depends entirely on where you live. Uh, so, if you live in the USA or Canada or Australia, you can now train and progress through to a commercial pilot license uh, and an ATPL, Air Transport Pilot License, and get a job as an airline pilot. In the US, you know, you, you can fly single pilot. Uh, in Canada and Australia, you can fly, you can only fly multi-crew. In the UK, one of the current anomalies is if you're an airline pilot and you get diagnosed with diabetes that requires insulin therapy, once you're appropriately treated and managed, you can return to flying. At the moment, you cannot as a kid that's been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, start your training and qualify. 
uh, and that's something that I know there are a number of people lobbying to change in the UK. Mm. Uh, yep. And I think you know, that, that's the way it used to be in Canada. That's been a recent change in Canada. Uh, and I dare say that in the UK, because you know the, the Canadian protocol preceded the UK protocol, that you know, that may well have been inherited that way. Um, but the way I see it is that you know you manage your diabetes all day, every day, and the longer you've had it, the better you get at it, and you just get used mm. to adapting your diabetes management to various situations in life, whatever they be. So if you're a kid that's yeah. had diabetes since you were a kid and you get to your, your teens and you want to learn to fly, yeah, it's going to, you know, it's a foreign environment learning to fly and you're going to learn how it impacts your diabetes and you're going to learn how your diabetes needs to be managed in that environment. And because you've got a good understanding of your disease and you've adapted it to other environments, it's not going to be a problem doing that. Likewise, with the person that's diagnosed while they're an airline pilot, you're in a complex environment but you've got this new thing to manage. So once you learn how to manage that new thing, you can slot it into the complex operational environment you already know and love. Um, the funny question in my mind is someone who's diagnosed while they're learning to fly, who is learning, learning to manage these two complex things at the same time, whether, whether the, you, know, you would grow into both of them simultaneously or whether it might be insurmountable and you would need to figure out one before you figured out the other uh, and my gut feeling is that you would there would probably be a six-month grounding period um, whilst you figured out your diabetes and once it was appropriately managed then you could return to to learning to fly mm. um, but yeah so as, as a teenage kid go for it uh, you just have to move to uh, yeah the UK <laughs> Canada Australia or um, or the USA. <laughs> there are other European states that um, that follow the UK protocol. So Ireland, um, Austria, um, and there's a couple of others that I don't know off the top of my head. I'm sorry, but it's certainly not just isolated to the UK. Your uh, tagline on your social media is "Overcoming life's hurdles <laughs> to remain airborne." I think you know. That's, that sentence, you know, it speaks volumes and, you know, you're, you're really, you're really living that dream. You're looking at something so detailed, you know, diabetes, you know, specifically, and you've overcome something so quite intense in its own ways, but at the same time that speaks and can inspire so many others in different situations and it extrapolates to so many other situations and so, so many other people. And, you know, you, you, but by telling your story, I, I, I think it, it really, is touching a lot of people. I hope it does that. With, with I just wanted to also so. allude to the conversation we had with our uh, our medical student colleague over in the states. And one thing that was that struck me as a commonality was that both of you mentioned the both of you are pilots. Both of you have got um, private pilot license or a training to do so, and also are interested in aviation medicine. And you talk about how actually beneficial it is for you as. AMEs or DAMEs, as you call them in, the, in Australia, to have a good understanding of the technical environment that the pilot is up operating in. Um, and would you say that it's almost like a sort of desirable or almost essential criteria, do you think, of being aerospace medical examiner to actually have had that practical experience either through either civilian or commercial flying or doing something professionally or having a private pilot's license or something like that? I do. I, I, yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's essential to have an understanding of of the operational aspects of the people that you're managing. Um, I don't think that necessarily means you have to go and physically get a pilot's license, but if uh, you know, because some people aren't interested in flying, some people just are, you know, fascinated by aviation medicine. Um, but I think you need to expose yourself to that operational environment as much as you can to to understand the various aspects of it, uh, whether that be you know, it's one of the hard things that we have in the airline world is, um, you know, after September 11 and all the cockpit doors got locked, mm. you can't get a jump seat ride as an AME anymore just to just to watch and, and look. It's one of the things we're working on in Australia actually at the moment is trying to set up a regular program where AMEs can either uh, experience uh, an airline flight simulator session, whether that be, you know, a session with two AMEs attempting to fly the airplane and a a simulator instructor in the back guiding them or whether it's an AME observing one of the regular recurrent training sessions that, that airline pilots go through. Uh, yeah, something like that just That's to great. just to expose people to that 
operational environment. So that's for people looking after airline pilots. If you're an AME that looks after, you know, agricultural pilots or survey pilots or um, flying instructors, uh, you know, I think you should go and and try and uh, experience some of that operational environment firsthand, just so that you can see what what people are exposed to, what you know, what sort of decision making they need to be doing, what uh, what physical limitations they're operating environment imposes on them yeah i think i think having that understanding in some aspect is essential for the job thank you very much for clarifying that that's really useful Mm. and and actually that that gives me a lot of hope because uh i definitely want to uh, increase my aviation experience in terms of me flying in terms of getting a license in terms of going down that route however i think right now given my other commitments um you know taking uh anesthesiology and my residency, you know, very seriously, I, I don't think it would be a wise decision to do that. However, perhaps there is some opportunity to look at flight simulation and taking some, you know, other courses which be, might be mm. less costly for me. Yeah, would would you recommend this? Um, yeah, there's a, a lot of the commercially available flight simulator experiences uh, these days are incredibly realistic. Um, so, you, know, you can pay a few hundred dollars to go for one of those guided sessions in a flight simulator. Uh, yeah, that'd be that'd be great fun. And also, maybe think about incorporating that into the training programs. As you mentioned, that Australia's now got the the college as well. The UK has got a specific training program in aviation and space medicine. Mm. But maybe that's maybe the next steps for that as well. Well, no, the the, um, the two training courses that are available here in Australia. One of them uh, incorporates uh, a quite lengthy um, flight simulator experience in an airline flight simulator as well as a visit to an air traffic control tower right Uh, and the other course also has an air traffic sorry uh, an airline flight simulator experience and also a practical hands-on session in a light aircraft oh wow Um, so yeah both those training courses are, are very much designed to at least provide a taste of that operational experience excellent stuff Mm. speaking of knocking down obstacles what's the next big obstacle that you're going to knock down within aviation medicine. I've got something in my mind, but I don't, I don't know if we're, if we're uh, going to say the same thing. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind just having a little break uh, for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For a decade and, uh, and I finally got there. So yeah, just a brief pause would be nice. Um, uh, what I need to focus on, not in aviation medicine, but in aviation, is finding myself a flying job. Uh, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't quite finish that, of answering that question. You know, the, my long-term goal would be, yeah, my have my cake and eat it to job would be working for a major airline as a line pilot involved in their aviation medical department, you know, doing a, a mix of both. That, mm. uh, that would just be amazing. Um, but failing that, you know, if that never happens... If I can continue my AME work part-time and find some flying job of any description part-time, I I think I'll be happy. So that's the current goal is to find myself a flying job of some description. Uh, And at the moment, it's a pretty tough employment market. So uh, we'll see what happens. (laughs) Of course. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that with us. The, the thing that I had in, in my mind, uh, to be honest, I, I think in my mind, I have a depiction of you as almost like a superhuman person. You did the engineering, you did this, you did that. You just, you just keep on smashing down walls. But what I was thinking of was, um, it's actually, uh, impossible for uh, a diabetic to be an astronaut to go into space uh, from NASA. Um, so they don't allow mm. diabetics to go into space. So that's that's something which is going to be interesting. Yeah, I uh, did apply forward. for the last EASA um, round of astronaut intake in 2009, um, but that was before I had either an engineering or a medical qualification, so I didn't meet the cut. Um, I'd love to be an astronaut. Wouldn't that just be amazing? Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, mm. maybe when I'm feeling refreshed, Next week, maybe I'll start that journey. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I won't be surprised. But but there's actually a lot of uh, interplay and intersection between diabetes and uh, space medicine, aerospace medicine, for obvious reasons. But looking 
further and deeper into it, there's a lot of research, mm. really interesting research looking at insulin and how it behaves in microgravity. There's been some major breakthroughs in the last 20 years with that. And essentially what we're looking at is some devices which have been developed out of this microgravity uh, environment um, and how insulin might grow uh, and the islet cells might, might be uh, in a more favorable position in microgravity. So it's really interesting what's, what's going on with diabetes and, and space yeah, medicine, fantastic. aerospace medicine. Um, yeah, well, if they need a live subject for any testing in space, um, please ask on my details. <laughs> Actually, um, but for those of you that are on Instagram, there's a, uh, a fantastic uh, woman with type 1 diabetes who is actually an international space station flight controller. So she's one of the people in, the, in NASA's command center that, um, that, that drives the space station around. Uh, her handle, okay. I think, is Nerdy April. Um, so, yeah, she, and she actually posts a great mix yeah, of April. life with diabetes and working at NASA type stuff on her feed. Um, yeah, well worth a look. That's great. That's great. Excellent. Okay, Rohan, before we move on to the final uh, section of the interview, do, do you have any other questions to ask? No, I don't have anything specific towards diabetes. I think um, what I wanted to kind of ask or, or say was that as you kind of alluded to yourself, Daniel, uh, Jeremy's the kind of guy who seems to have, have kind of almost done it all. And on top of that, as you mentioned, you were balancing family and children and, and all the rest of it. What sort of things did you have going through your mind? How did you manage to balance all of those things in the way that you've managed to balance them? Or do you think you have managed them well? Oh, I mean, it's just a giant compromise, isn't it? You know, the, the mm. painful overachiever, high work ethic part of me would love to be working full time in all the things I enjoy. But mm. that, that would not allow time for a family. Um, you know, the dad in me that loves building Lego with my kids and going for bike rides and taking them flying and stuff like that. Uh, mm. You know, I'd love to do that. More. I'd love to be able to drop them off and pick them up from school you know, more days of the week than not. Uh, but if I did that, my career would stagnate um, and, uh, you know, maintaining my relationship with my wife. Yeah, whilst <laughs> Which is super important, of course. Yeah, um, stay as well. whilst balancing, you know, time with the kids and time at work and then time for hobby flying. Uh it is. It's just a, a juggle and a compromise. Um, you know, like I said, I spent four years doing my two junior doctor years. Uh, you know, mm. I could be I could be significantly further ahead in my medical career had I chosen to do that, but I probably wouldn't be married. Um, you know, I could have a much better relationship with my children, with my daughter in particular, who basically didn't know me for the first eighteen months of her life because that was the final eighteen months of med school. Um, mm. But if I'd pulled out of med school, which crossed my mind many times in fourth year, uh, I wouldn't. Wow! I wouldn't be here being a doctor and doing all this interesting aviation medicine stuff. Um, and inspiring. Well, trying yeah. to. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it's just, I guess, you know, life pulls you in different directions, and you've got to go with the bits that pull you the hardest at various times, and. Uh, I yeah I just try and make time for the things that are important to me and if something's got to give something's got to give you know um, I think that's it you know I, I think people have more time than they realise uh, mm. you know I'm I'm halfway through GP training I'm probably a quarter of the way through aerospace medicine training and I'm 41 years old uh, you know that there, there is no hurry I'll get there. You know, I'll, I'll be qualified by the time I'm in my mid to late that. 40s. Uh, as a doctor, that gives me, you know, 40 years of being a useful doctor till I drop dead in my job. Um, mm. So, yeah, <laughs> there's plenty of time. <laughs> I think that's a really, I think some interesting things, I, I don't know, I just seem to pick up on is that you kind of... Um, is is that you you say it's kind of it reminds me of what you were saying with regards to your instruments and your systems as you were checking them you know like as things start to get a bit more serious that's when they deserve a bit more attention and yeah. uh, to me anyway it sounds like you've kind of applied a similar sort of analogy perhaps to the way that you've approached life as well which is actually really hmm. 
really nice to hear. I think I was kind of asking, uh, wondering as well, like, do you, is it how on a day-to-day basis, how is it that you manage your time? Is it because, is it like a sort of, you use a piece of paper and you, and you do it that way? Do you use particular apps, calendars, that sort of thing? Uh, probably just my calendar. Um, yeah, my, my calendar looks, looks like a unicorn has vomited on it because it's, um, it's got about a thousand <laughs> different colors. I have a very visual brain. <laughs> I don't work well with dot points or words. Um, colors and pictures is how my brain works. So I've got, I've got my calendar with my personal life, my doctor life, my AME life, my flying life. Oh, I love it. The different colors. And then I've got the kids. They've each got their own calendar. Uh, my wife has two jobs, so she's got her personal life, her two jobs, so that's three more colours. Um, wow. And then there's a couple of overlap things. So I'm looking at my calendar and I've got 13 different colours in there. Um, and that, yeah, if it's not in the calendar, it doesn't exist. Um, and that happens occasionally when I forget to put things in or my wife forgets to put things in and we double book ourselves. But generally that's that's how we we figure it out and and it's just communication you know when life gets really busy my wife make an effort my wife and I make an effort to sit down once a week and just look at the week coming up and mm. figure out who's doing what because you know there's there's my life pulling me in different directions but my wife's professional and personal life does the same thing so there are times when I have to make myself less busy because my wife needs to be more busy or has become more busy uh, and hasn't you know because that's out of her control she just you know, work work dictates that. Uh, mm. So it is. It's just you know, give and take, communication, uh, lots of bright colours. That, that seems to keep us on track. Awesome. And unicorn <laughs> vomit. <Not Yep>. <laughs> that one's going to stick. Uh, yeah, I'm just looking at this week's calendar. It's um, it's been interesting. Awesome. Excellent. So. Now, we've got a couple of questions just yep. towards the end to um, give something, the, the listeners, something to take away that they can do now or they can take from you and, you know, on top of what they already have. In particular, I want to know if you have any books or any literature like that you'd like to recommend or audio books that you'd like to recommend yeah, to the listeners. Books. I love um, you know, books from the golden era of flying, you know, all the the early explorers in the 20s and 30s, and then all of the um, the post-World War II experimental test flying, you know, breaking the sound barrier and, uh, mm. and and getting up into space, that kind of stuff. They're the, they're the books that fascinate me. And my, my two favourites, um, one is called Frigate Bird by P.G. Taylor, and he's a, a very famous Australian aviator, and he was the first to fly the South Pacific uh, he flew from Australia to Chile across the South Pacific, which is wildly uninhabited. Um, and it's a, mm. it's a fascinating story. Um, all sorts of ludicrous adventures, you know, jet assisted takeoffs in a flying boat from the open ocean off Easter Island. Um, wow. yeah. Well, uh, and the other book is a book called The Lonely Sky by William Bridgman, who was, um, who was one of the early experimental jet test pilots after the war. Uh, he flew for Douglas. And I particularly love his story because uh, he, was a, you know, he was a bomber pilot during the war, but he chose not to write about that um, like so many others had done. You know, there's a chapter dedicated mm-hmm. to it. But after the war, he did what a lot of airline pilots did. He got into an airline job and he just, he just didn't like it. You know, he got bored of the monotony and... He threw away a secure, well-paying job to go and chase test flying work. And mm. uh, he ended up doing uh, yeah, incredible, incredible flying. Uh, he was one of the first pilots to, to break Mark II. Um, and, yeah, the airplane that he did that in, the, the Douglas Skyrocket, is at the Chino Plains of Fame Museum in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh and the day that I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, uh, I was told to go to get the next flight back to Australia. And I, um, I just missed the lunchtime flight and the next flight wasn't available till the next day. So being a good tragic pilot, I went to the Planes of Fame Museum and looked at all these amazing airplanes that I'd always wanted to fly. 
and uh, you know, lamented the loss of my aviation career. But I, in particular, I remember seeing the Douglas skyrocket and secretly reaching across the barrier and touching it when I shouldn't have. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but <laughs> I that's great. I love it. He, he walked away from the safety and security and followed his heart and had an amazing life as a result of it. Um, mm. And that's, you know, that, mm. that has always resonated strongly with me. Wow. Wow. Um, anybody in particular who you haven't uh, described already who's inspired you and, and why? Well, well, I have to mention Douglas Cairns. Um, so Douglas mm. Cairns was a, a UK uh, fighter pilot and instructor when he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in his uh, mid-20s. And he is one of the single driving forces behind the, the protocol change in the UK um, and, and around the world. You know, he, he circumnavigated the world in a light aircraft uh, after his diagnosis. So he, he has been a, uh, a constant source of inspiration um, that, you know, just playing the long game pays off in the end. Uh, you know, I've met him mm. on a couple of occasions and I keep in regular email contact with him and you know, keep him updated with things that are happening here in Australia. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's something, someone that I would definitely mention as a, an inspiration. He has a fantastic little autobiography as well, actually, called Dare to Dream. It's a nice, uh, nice easy read about his, his story. Dare to dream. Noted. Just as we're finishing off, I think you've kind of alluded to a few things already, but are there any particular messages or mantras that you try and live by that feel like you've brought you along your path? Because obviously you've taken a few tangents here and there, but ultimately you seem to be in a position where right now you're pretty satisfied so far of what you've achieved. What sort of things have you been living by to get to where you are, would you say? Uh, I guess uh, I guess I've just always I've always tried to follow my heart professionally. You know, I've I've pursued things that I found interesting and if if I found myself at a point where I I want to know more, I've gone and done something. You know, when I enrolled in that engineering masters, that was a giant leap of faith. Uh, you know, I hadn't been to uni for years, and you know, yeah. an aerospace engineering masters degree sounds horribly daunting. Um, really, it's <laughs> just a lot of maths. Uh, so, yeah, don't worry about being afraid of doing something. Just go and have a crack at it. You know, the worst that can happen is that you don't achieve what you've set out to achieve, but in trying, you will learn. You know, you will learn things uh, about what you wanted to learn, but also about yourself. So, uh, yeah, just don't be afraid to try. Don't be afraid to to ask. Do you recommend that masters for other doctors interested in aerospace medicine? Oh, not really. Um, uh, you know, I did it because I wanted to learn more about aeroplanes <laughs> and uh, mm. the. You know, if you are really interested in uh, the technical aspects of, um, you know, high-speed aerodynamics, uh, jet and rocket propulsion, uh, computational fluid dynamics, that kind of stuff, then, yeah, absolutely, go do it. Uh, but if, I mean, it doesn't matter if you want to learn about aeroplanes, I guess it, you've got to look at where you're at, what your current uh, skill set and knowledge level is, and... Um, if you've never learned anything about aeroplanes at all, then even doing something like a enrolling in the theory course for a private pilot's license will give you an excellent broad spread of knowledge about the aviation industry. Um, mm. you, know, you, don't, you don't have to go to university to learn stuff. Uh, if you want to learn how aeroplanes work, you know, you go and, go and spend some time at a maintenance organisation and... Uh, you know, or someone who owns an aeroplane privately or someone who's building a kit aeroplane and, and just ask if you can get involved or get your hands dirty. Uh, there's you know, lots of ways you can, you can learn about aeroplanes. And if there's a specific type of aeroplane or corner of aviation that you're particularly interested in, yeah, just go and ask. Um, I think that's, that's another thing that I've always found is if you, if you just ask people, you know, yeah, some people say no, but on the whole, people go, oh, yeah, this person's interested in stuff. You know, I'm happy to mm. share my world with them. And, and you'll, you know, you'll, you'll get opportunities. Doors will open and, uh, you know, you never know what will happen. On that bombshell, um, <laughs> I'd like to thank you immensely for joining us, Jeremy. Uh, your story, even though I've heard it in several different 
uh, ways through your different podcasts and been following you on on social media. You know, actually talking to you, you know, really digging deep into your experience. You know, I really appreciate it, and I've personally taken a, a lot from it. And I'm excited to see what happens next for you. And we're going to keep on following you. Um, so, so thank you once again. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. It's been it's been a lot of fun talking to you guys. And uh, yeah, life hasn't been boring yet, and I don't really expect that to change. So uh, yeah, who knows what's going to happen next. That's absolutely fantastic, Jeremy. And I just like to echo the same sort of thing. It has been real, real pleasure to to talk to you and hear about uh, just the varied experience and that sort of going and living life properly aspect, which was just really, really great. Mm. So, uh, you can you just uh, just quickly highlight your Instagram and other places that we can find you if people want to hear more about your story and and, and get a little bit more information into you and who you are. All right. Um, well, I'm not on all the socials, but I'm on a couple. Uh, so Instagram. Uh, again, that visual brain of mine loves pictures. So uh, Type 1 Pilot, uh, there's a few Type 1 Pilots on there now, which is fantastic. So specifically, mm-hmm. I'm Type underscore 1 underscore Pilot, but I think I'm the only Jeremy Type 1 Pilot. So and I'm probably the only Type 1 Pilot in Australia. So you'll find me. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm on LinkedIn. It's just my name, Jeremy Robertson. Uh, again, I think I'm the only Jeremy Robertson that's a pilot and a doctor. So you should be able to find me. Uh Facebook, I'm there, but I don't really use it very much. Um, yeah, that's there. Yeah, any of those. I mean, it all comes to my phone, so you can contact me through any of them. And uh, uh, always happy to talk flying or diabetes or aviation medicine. That's absolutely fantastic. And of course, we'll just put those into the show notes as well. So that's a little bit more easy for for people to hopefully navigate and to find you. So from me, uh, and I'm sure from Daniel as well, thank you once again, Jeremy, for coming and joining us. It's probably coming up to 10pm over on your side. So maybe maybe you want to go and grab a nap or something or go to bed. But uh, I can only say thank you so much. And uh, thank you all for Mm. listening to this particular episode of the Aerospace Medicine Podcast. Thank you. It's been fantastic. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading and listening to our podcast. We hope that you gained a lot from it. And if you'd like to hear some more stuff like this, much more, make sure you subscribe on whichever platform you found this on. And if you like what you heard, drop us a rating too. You can also give us a follow on our social media accounts. We are at Aeromed Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And once again, that's at Aeromed Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Also, we like to hear your feedback. Of course, improve. So let us know your thoughts by emailing us at aerospacemedicinepodcast at gmail.com. That's aerospacemedicinepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, though, thanks so much again for listening. Stay safe, keep aiming high, and we will see you very, very soon.